Chigoe, an only podcast series focusing on current matters in the Mi'kmaq community. Gwe, Akjilasi, Ninde Luisi Shandok. Hello and welcome. My name is Sean Doak. I'm a proud member of the Lennox Island First Nation and communications officer with Ulnaway. Welcome to Jigue. I'm your host, and today I'm fortunate to be joined by Chief Junior Gould of Abigwood First Nation. We're going to be talking about residential schools and how things got to where they are today. Thank you very much for joining me today, Chief. I appreciate your time. Great, Sean. Thank you for having me. So for those who may not know, what were the Indian residential schools? Are you just jumping right in? I'm going to jump right in. <laughs> I think it's a good starting point because there there are people who are just learning that these schools exist just now. And Absolutely, Sean. Yeah. First of all, um, well, Alan, Nindy Eloise and Sotomo, Loli Giegelson. I am uh, uh, Chief Roddy Gould, Jr. I'm of the Muscar clan. Um, so, Sean, um, there's such a deep history here. And, and you, you jump in with uh, Indian Residential School, what it means. I think you have to understand... Uh, uh, what it means to each individual and, and the capacity that they bring to the table to speak to it. Um, myself personally, as this is my second term as a chief, and I've always spoke to this issue, and it's not something that just came up last week with the finding of uh, new crime scenes. Um, I was also the president of ASH, an Aboriginal Survivors for Healing, which is supported by the Federal Government Initiative under the uh, Aboriginal Healing Foundation. Uh, the Aboriginal Healing Foundation was started around the same time as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and what it was designed to do was to provide support services for uh, residential survivors who told their story. Um, what we've done there, we've created an arms-length uh, organization in Charlottetown, which provides services to survivors on Prince Island and Nova Scotia through uh, Indian residential uh, support care workers, uh, traditional uh, court workers, and just uh, uh, knowledge keepers and support staff um, who had traditional um, uh, services that weren't offered in the general public. That kind of funding um, lasted for 10 years, and I'm proud to say that I led that and was able to support the survivors in Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia to some degree. Um, we've all, I've always had the opportunity to listen to the stories being told. Uh, the, the difference between the Aboriginal Healing Foundation and a class action lawsuit was that they're both derived from the same time. The survivors created a class action lawsuit against the federal government, and the federal government acknowledged this, and they went to work to... Uh, to uh, alleviate any of the litigation and stuff like that by offering settlements and, and coming to an agreement where the survivors were able to uh, be bought out at the time. Uh, they offset a supplemental organizational fund under the Aboriginal Healing Foundation to provide the support services. Uh, it's unfortunate they, they thought that that was uh, a, a, a timelined event that would only last for 10 or 12 years, which uh, then they, they, they canceled that kind of uh, support funding. Um, here we are today uh, when we've come full circle. Uh, the uh, re-triggering of uh, what's happening now is just uh, a, a, a reiteration of how I felt back in the day that a, a class action settlement and agreement by the federal government to accept their responsibility was a drop in the bucket. Uh, they didn't include any of the loss of language, loss of identity, the intergenerational trauma for me as a descendant and my children have been passed on and will continue to, to be triggered over time. So there's deep, rich history to the wrongdoings of the federal government and the churches that are involved with it. Uh, so when you jump right in, you say the word Indian residential school, that in itself triggers so many different variables, John. Mm. Yeah, and maybe that was uh, maybe not a question. To, maybe I should have warmed up a little bit first. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> I know. Okay, all right. So residential schools, the, the topic is triggering for people in general, and especially with the, the news of these crime scenes being discovered. What do residential schools represent to you? Because I know that your father attended residential school in Shubenacadie, Nova Scotia, I think it was. Right. Um, so you have a personal connection to all of this as well. Yeah, absolutely, Sean Lee. This goes, I was, I was fairly young, and, and I, I'll share a quick little story with you of what it means to me. Um, 
my father, uh, Roddy Gould, was with a few other survivors, Marie Nockwood. Um, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I have the right to uh, to speak on behalf of those people, and uh, and uh, they've, they've honored me with that, so I'll, I'll share their stories with my father's. Um, we, they met at the Irish Benevolent Society, and I stood in the back with another uh, uh, friend of mine, Darcy Sock, and we stood there, and we listened to our, our parents stand up and talk to these lawyers from Nova Scotia who were there to uh, get everybody signed on to a class action lawsuit. Right. And I looked at my, my, my best friend, and I said, they're not here to hear mom's, your mother's story. They're not here to hear dad's story. They're here to, for litigation. They're here for a specific claim. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was uh, hurt for our elders that wanted to get up and just talk and be heard. So that, that, that started us back then, that we wanted to support our parents and give them the, a proper and safe environment, which they could tell their stories outside of that. And that's why I went after the application for the Aboriginal Healing Foundation, which was just that. So we started to support services way back in the time. And what it was was we didn't create something for the survivors. They tried creating it, and we just gave them a safe, safe environment to tell their stories. Mm-hmm. So um, there's, there's so much to it. And uh, where we are today is that my, my father was... Um, was part of the class action settlement, and uh, I, I was optimistically glad that he that he got it in the sense that he had a little bit of closure on it in that capacity, and he also had a little bit of a monetary settlement. Uh, I think it was a a a, um, a good thing at the time because too many of our elders were being buried with their stories and their stories not being heard, and there was no closure for them. So if that gave my father a bit of closure, I was okay with that. I would accept it for what it is at the time. Yeah. The one thing that he took to his grave to this day that that I know we were resentful to and. Um, had some animosity towards was the Catholic Church. Uh, he never received an apology from anybody in any any level to uh, to offer an apology, and mm. he took that to his grave. And it's unfortunate that to this day and age, and this this in 2021, that offer from the Pope or somebody in the power authority to accept their role in this has not been accepted. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not sure if that uh, was on the question that we started talking about. <laughs> I think, it, you know, you did answer it uh, through uh, what you just said inadvertently, whether you meant to or not. Um, breaking the silence is a term I've heard a lot recently. I've heard you use it a lot as well. And uh, what does that mean, breaking the silence? It's a it's a cross-platform idea. Um, with the murdered and missing Indigenous women, one of the things that troubled me with the Sir John A. Macdonald statue is there's always a correlation to how our people are treated. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first... Uh, media platforms that I released was a was a video where I talked about the Sir John A. Macdonald statue and the the people thought that he was splashed with red paint and they didn't get it no he wasn't he had the red hand on his, on his face yes. exactly and yeah. I was like and it, and it bothered me that people don't get that it, mm-hmm. the symbolic re, it wasn't vandalism it was a specific it was a statement mm-hmm. a strong statement um, and the exact same time that happened was the same time that the federal government had issued um, their infringement upon our, our, our moderate livelihood treaty rights yes based entrenched by the Supreme Court of Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was that whole uh, vicious cycle of treating the Indian problem mm-hmm. and that, uh, that uneducated view of what things are and how they are in the world. So we've, we haven't gone um, any further ahead. We've, we, we, they fulfilled their bureaucratic checklist, like the, the, the checklist for the murder of indigenous women called the action. That still hasn't been implemented. No. Um, the, uh, uh, the Sinclair report, um, TRC calls the to truth action. Truth and reconciliation call to action. That hasn't been implemented. That's a bureaucratic thing to push the ball down the field. And, mm-hmm. and so when, when I see uh, 
the Sir John A. McDonald statue, and it triggers all of the other variables associated with how First Nation peoples are treated. I said, enough's enough. We have to talk. We have to break the silence. So what I started doing is talking, and I'm still doing that today. When 215 children were found in a grave of unmarked children in, in British Columbia, I said, this is enough's enough. Let's break the silence. I said, the silence that, my, that I want to break is the silence that my father took to his grave. The Catholic Church had a hand in this. The federal government had a bigger role in this than they let on. Uh, and I think breaking the silence is the only way to move forward and uh, to validate my father's uh, my father's legacy. Mm-hmm. And there's I, I know there's such a disconnect between what the public and general public knows and what indigenous communities have always known. You know, this has been lived through generations and, and it still affects us to this day. So as we talked about, education is key in all of this. And residential schools, I think people need to be educated on that. It should be taught in the school systems. It should be taught through all levels of government, public service, and things like that. But how do you suggest we educate people who are only now learning about some of these atrocities? Like, they're just coming to light. You know, people haven't known about this like we have. Right, Sean. One of the, one of the, I look at it, try to look at things in this most simplistic way. And I think if you have a, a complex problem, you have to believe that somebody, and, and I think it's our children, have the, the ability to do better than we've done in the past. And I think that's that's controlling your future by educating your children in, in all of society. One of the things that, when you try to say, oh, well, we need a curriculum, we need a language, we need this and that, you can slow down and I offer another suggestion. I met with a UPI president recently and I suggested, he suggested to me it's going to take a while for the Senate to approve a curriculum, and and, and I was like, oh, here, here's a here's an easy suggestion to help us get from point A to point B. Let's start here. Implement a three-word program to your syllabus. In, implement a program or work plan for your for your faculty. Include three words: Indian residential school. What does that mean to the nursing uh, faculty? Mm-hmm. Ask them. There's all kinds in there. I, I met, and I think the nursing one was the easiest one. Uh, I asked him, what, what are the criteria and components for taking care of seniors? He said, oh, there's a long list of it, elder care, and it goes on and on and on. I said, what are the, what are the criteria and protocols in your curriculum to take care of Indian residential survivors and their descendants? And she said, it doesn't exist. It wasn't in there. And I said, create it. Mm-hmm. So the suggestion is that each and every faculty in education, academia has a simple three-word thing, and then have the, the student body, the students come up with ideas, engineers. Ask the engineers, well, how do you get Indian, Indian residential schools implemented in the engineer program? I don't know. Ask them that. Say, here's the three words. How do you apply it? Well, how do you, how do you detain First Nation children in a building? You have, you have to have a structurally sound building. You have to control the entrances. How do you bury Indian residential schools in, the, in a building? Engineers could probably come up with a way in which they did it. Engineers come up with an oh, idea of how to better um, track and find out the DNA of the body. Like there's all kinds of ways of looking at in each and every department through any fa- faculty. Mm-hmm. My suggestion is that over time, the, the the need for the knowledge, the traditional knowledge, and the academic knowledge would be there to create a curriculum moving forward. So I think it, it, it has to start in the schools. It has to start with uh, with the educational system. It has to start with uh, the average Joe in public. I think. Um, but we'll see on Canada Day how many orange shirts are being worn. Right. And if uh, one person isn't wearing an orange shirt, he should feel different mm-hmm. not included he should feel different if out he's walking place. out right exactly and that's mm-hmm. what i want I, and then i want the conversation to start well someone say uh sean why aren't you wearing an orange shirt right. say, well, am i supposed to <laughs> right and then the conversation starts and yes. i think that's that's win-win for us and our and our families i think first nation families have uh have been silent for too long mm-hmm. um when my father told this story back in the day he was he was not believed <laughs> you know, even us sean right like recently and you know this is part of our communications when we told the city of Charlottetown our story and concerns with the Sir John A. Macdonald and drew the correlation between him and the atrocities of uh, mm-hmm. uh, the policies that the federal government had put in play back in the day to help create the residential school system, 
we were kind of like, oh, that's that that was way back then. That's not really that serious. Yeah. Right. It, it took the bodies of 215 children being discovered exactly. for them to make a move. Right. So what that suggests to us, Sean, is that they didn't believe us. Mm-hmm. Either we were lying or we were <laughs> misleading them or something, right? So yeah. that's why I say, well, let's break the silence. We're not lying. We're telling the truth, and this is our history. And we just want someone to listen. I think if we have a platform and an opportunity to speak and break the silence, we should be taking it. We should be doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and you mentioned it's our history. It's not just our history, it's Canadian history. You know, and this is this is what Canadians need to know about the country that, that they haven't and that's been hidden for so long. What responsibility do governments and churches need to take in this? I know we you know, you mentioned there's no, been no formal apology from the Pope, um, and, and there's you know, supports, you know, government makes platitudes and things like that, but it, what what can they really do to help, you know, on help us heal and, and, and get this information out? Well, it's getting the information out, Sean. And when you when you develop a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, with has great recommendations. But if you haven't even addressed the truth, um, to suggest that the the federal government just is aware of this today, hundreds of thousands of stories were collected during the uh, the uh, class action lawsuit by the Indian Residential School survivors, and hundreds of thousands of stories were were, were recovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they they have that information. And what was done for that? <laughs> nothing. You Not know what much. I mean? Not, no. Nothing. Nothing no. at all. Uh, so the, you can hold your federal government accountable to that. Then, then they're, what they're going to say, as I know, oh, uh, well, Chief Gould, your dad, he took the he took the check and he signed off on it, right? He he did because that was a way for you to cover up the atrocities that you did, mm-hmm. right? And if that's the case, then let's look into this further. Let's let's get to truth about this. So one one of the things that um, that I've always said, and I go on the record way back in the day with the Assembly of First Nations, is stating this: is saying that. The class action lawsuit was addressing a specific claim specific to individuals for what they what they endured. Have you taken into consideration the loss of language, the loss of culture, the loss of identity, and the intergenerational trauma that the descendants and their grandchildren are going to have moving forward? Uh, the response that I got back then when I publicly made that at the Assembly First Nations Assembly meeting was, uh, no, we did not take that into consideration because language is too diverse. And I, f- I felt strongly, and I went on the record saying that language is the uh, is the uh, is the foundational identity of a culture and a people. And I said, if you take away that language, you've taken away their culture and their identity. And I've gone on the record as, as historically, like twenty some years ago, saying this. And this story has been going on for me and my family for twenty some years plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was old enough to to take the the torch and uh, um, break the silence for my father and speak on his behalf, I've been doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard the, the phrase intergenerational healing uh, as opposed to intergenerational trauma, and I really like that. I, what, what does this mean, though, and how, how could we make, start to make that shift? Right, absolutely. Uh, when, you, when you have all the catchphrases and different things like that, you have to come up with solutions. I, like, I, don't, I don't agree with canceling culture. I don't agree with canceling history. I, I think there should be uh, truth to power. Um, intergenerational trauma is a, is, a, is a quote, is a fact, something that is a, um, a result of, of a traumatic event such as Indian residential schools. Mm-hmm. So my, my philosophy is intergenerational trauma can be offset by intergenerational healing. Um, if one person comes to an event that we hold or a ceremony and they're, they're, they, get it, they get it, they go home and they talk to their kids, right, and their kids pass it on to them, that's an intergenerational healing process. That at some point in time when they're in school or with their peers and somebody says something about, about First Nations, I saw a First Nation man downtown, da, da, da. Or, or or part of anything. That someone in that crowd, if that generational healing process will raise their hand and say, that's not true. Uh, that's not true. Mm-hmm. I know the truth. I heard Chief Gould speak to it. I know this family. I know these people. They're good people. And, that's, and that intergenerational healing 
It was depending on the individual mm -hmm. to pass that on and, and that knowledge. Because our federal government and our churches have failed First Nation communities. They've failed Canada. And, I, and I, that's why intergenerational trauma can be offset by intergenerational healing. Mm -hmm. But in order to get there, you have to speak to the truth. And the truth is this, shame on Canada because you failed your First Nations. And I think that should be a statement that all Canadians should say mm -hmm. and be able to back it up with some knowledge. Mm -hmm. And how can we hold Canada and the churches accountable for for not taking this responsibility and not acting? You know, obviously, Sean, we can't because <laughs> it's <laughs> 2021. Uh, there's, there's failed recommendations put forward. Uh, you can look at it in every capacity. If First Nation communities are still trying to get safe and potable drinking water, if the housing inadequacies on First Nations is still subpar based on the standard for living in houses in, in, in Canada, we live in a third world poverty state on reservations. Uh, if the federal government is fighting the welfare system uh, to when we're trying to get more money to provide better social care for our children, when a Child and Family Services uh, Act and, and uh, organizations still run an Indian agent ideology, uh, we haven't gone too much further ahead. So it'd be pretty simple. Um, the answer is this. You and I as First Nations, we can't change it. Mm -hmm. because we live it. This is our history. This is our reality. The Canadian public has the ability to change it. They can call their, their, their politicians, their church leaders, the people who have the power to change and act on the recommendations put forward in every capacity to help us. And I think that's where the power has to be. The power is in the people, the Canadian citizens. I really like that. You know, it's, it's yeah, I, I totally agree with you. It's about waking up the people, changing the public opinion to force right. the change in government policy. Yeah, absolutely, Sean. And what, one of the things that why I can uh, why I say that is because I believe that uh, I believe in civil disobedience. I believe in uh, civil discourse. I think it it, it has a purpose. Uh, it creates democracies. It creates countries. It creates great nations such as Canada. We all come from uh, wanting change. The ability to change something comes from the individual. Um, Canceling things and and protests and stuff like that was the the need sometimes to draw attention to a specific event. We don't have that here. We have a historical event that we've lived our history an entire across the board in every capacity, every social structure, everything you can think about, it hits all the, the metrics. Um, what we have here is a crime scene. So the crime scene is the thing, is the, the catalyst for change. And mm -hmm. I think the crime scene will allow us to move forward. I said, what, so you don't need to cancel things to draw attention to it. The attention's there. If you can't stand up for unmarked graves of children and based just on humanity, then there's something wrong with humanity. I don't think there's something wrong with humanity in Canada. I think we have a great nation, but I think we have to do, take the time and do some introspection and say, how can we fix this? How can we move forward? And I think we're here now. We, it, it is what it is. This is our history. Uh, do, we, do we cancel everything or do we celebrate it? I want to celebrate for my father. I want to say, Dad, it isn't, your story isn't over. I want to celebrate for him. If you had to say one thing to people, you know, take it upon themselves to, to take some action to learn about this, what would that be? My philosophy, Sean, and, I, and I've tried sharing this each and every chance I get, um, what has happened to our First Nation communities in every capacity over the, over the time, historically, to where we are today is part of our shared history, the good and the bad. You can, you can, you can point out the good, but you also can point out the bad. That's a shared history. That's our history. Uh, chronologically uh, record it. Be specific. Say, yes, that happened, but this also happened. Mm -hmm. Until that is done, you can't move forward. And the part about moving forward is, is even simpler. I say this to everybody and that will listen and want to be a part of it. We can't change history. We can't. But we can collectively create history. This day moving forward in 2021, we, the First Nation communities, have the power to create our history moving forward. We can change the history that our grandchildren and their grandchildren in the future will be looking back on. We have the power to create history. And let's do the right thing. 
now seems like the time more than ever with with everything going on people really do seem like they're they're starting to realize and wake up to the histories that were hidden for so long what do you hope to see for Canada in the future in terms of the general public, uh, you know, supporting First Nations in terms of the government working collaboratively with First Nations in a meaningful way? Right. The, the, the bureaucratic representation of your government should be transparent. I, I think it shouldn't be, a, a like I said, like a platitude or um, a point to fight in the claw back. You know what I mean? It can't just be a, a media public stunt or uh, once every uh, election term. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens in elections in the Canadian government, and I'll say this because this is the part of the problem. Um, one part of the government says, oh, we're helping First Nations communities. We're doing this, we're doing that once every four years. Uh, it appeases the certain segment of society which wants to help First Nations because they believe it is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But as soon as the election's over, it goes back to status quo. Right. There's never any change. There's never any real true change. And if you can go back to our, sh- our history, our shared history, that the, the bureaucratic wheel is only becomes relevant when the Canadian citizen is being lied to. Uh, that's that's a, uh, a big statement, but it's the facts and it's the truth. So I think um, you can hold your politicians accountable as a, as a Canadian citizen and say, look, you know, this shouldn't be something every four years or, or a political um, platform to help First Nations get safe drinking water. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's such a basic, it's, it's you know, simple, right? It's it's terrible. Mm. So I, I, I think uh, how do you how do you um, how do you make change? And, and other than educating your children, stuff, hold your hold your hold your municipality accountable. Hold your hold your government representatives accountable, mm-hmm. and ask the right questions. And I said, well, how do you get the right questions to ask? Engage First Nation leadership, engage our communities, find out the truth, engage the right people who speak on behalf of, in PEI, who speak on behalf of the Mi'kmaq. Chief Bernard and I right now speak on behalf of the Mi'kmaq PEI, and we have lots of things to say. We have lots of stories. Mm-hmm. So if there was a call to action in there, maybe it's it's to come and spend time with First Nations and their communities, learn uh, about their histories, believe them, and, and maybe after that, you know, once you have some understanding, some context of the situation, start trying to call upon, you know, your government leaders, your municipality leaders to hold them accountable, to ask the hard questions that haven't been asked in the past. Absolutely. Yep, that's the way to do it. Is there anything else that you want to talk about um, today, Chief Gould? I know that you've taken some time to sit down with me, and I really appreciate it. And I think this is a really good opportunity for, for you to have a voice. I know you, <laughs> you have your voice out all the time, but um, on this platform, I really appreciate it. You know, this is First Nations owned and operated, and, uh, and I think that, um, you know, your message won't be diluted or anything like that. Is there anything that you would like to tell the general public on the island or, or the First Nations communities? Uh, Sean, uh, we'll all need up. I, I, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you uh, taking uh, the time to listen and uh, and to share um, my story because it is just that. It is my story. Um, it's a shared story that I will continue to carry for my father. And I think um, um, the messaging has to be um, consistent. I think the platforms that are being used by uh, social media, uh, this uh, podcast, and other things are, are a great tool. Um, it's, it's unfortunate that um, there are people who will uh, continuously uh, will troll or who will be negative in response to anything that happens, uh, anything that is spoken. Somebody always takes uh, the, the, far, the far opposite of it, Sean. Right. We're both aware of that. I think um, what I'd like to say and share is that um, those people will always be there. They were back there in, back in the day. They will be there in the future. Uh, those aren't the people that I want to talk to. Those are not the people that I'm reaching out to. Uh, it's the people who have uh, an open heart, um, 
who, who have the ability to smudge with us, to clear their minds, to clear their ears, to clear their eyes, and clear their spirit mm-hmm. of any negativity in a productive way in which we can move forward. And I think our smudging ceremony, the very basic ideology is to open that, is open up your, your, your soul, your heart towards other people's uh, and have some empathy. And I think those are the people that, through this platform and other platforms, we are trying to reach, mm-hmm. the people that, can, that are concerned and have some, some, some care. Mm-hmm. I'll just say one thing before we, we kind of wrap this up. I have noticed just in my own, I used to live in Summerside, people there, you know, who I never thought paid attention or cared or even knew about First Nations issues and things like that, after all of, you know, this news coming out, I've seen people who are speaking out now. They're, they're you know, non-Indigenous, but they're becoming advocates. They're trying to educate other people who are not First Nations. They're wearing orange shirts for this Canada Day. And I just want to say that I think it's because of the work that you and Chief Bernard and the, the First Nations leadership and the communities do here on the island. I'm seeing changes in small ways, but those are meaningful changes. And I think they're they're signaling that things are changing, that we are on, on a path that does seem to be leading to people waking up. Absolutely, and I think that's, uh, it's, that's evident in, on my Facebook uh, from the responses I'm getting. Uh, the general consensus is that uh, it's, it's easy, uh, Sean, for people to associate with humanity. Uh, these are children, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, and my dad was a child when he was there, and uh, my aunt, she was a child, and my uncle Hubert, and he was a little child when they were there. And I think when you uh, take away the, the color of their skin, uh, which reserve they're from or where they live, and you say that's a child, every child's life does matter. And I think that's what you're seeing is that people are able to associate with the fact that children matter. The human element there, I think, is the connection Absolutely. because I know for so long it's just been, you know, government statistics, things like that. But there's a human element to the story now. Absolutely. I think it's, it's really getting people's attention. Right. We, we agree 100%. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Chief Gould. I really appreciate your time, and I hope that we can speak more on this podcast in the future. Yes, so do I. Will Alan eat up. I appreciate it. Will Alan. To find out more about Ulnui and the Megamot Rights Reconciliation Process, visit ulnui.ca.